welcome to A Wee Bit of War, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Northern Ireland during the Second World War. I'm your host, Scott Edgar, and in this episode, we're joined by Associate Professor in the School of Society and Culture at the University of Plymouth and author of the brand new book, Northern Ireland, the United States and the Second World War, Dr. Simon Topping. Simon, it's a pleasure to have you on A Wee Bit of War. In this episode, we'll be looking further at time spent in Northern Ireland by American forces during the Second World War. Uh, this is an area that you have researched at great length and written extensively about. Uh, for those listeners who are new to your work, can you give us a brief introduction? Who is Dr. Simon Topping? And can you tell us a little bit about your latest work? Uh, yes, Scott, thanks for the invite. Um, uh, my name's Simon Topping. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer in United States history at the University of Plymouth, but I'm originally from Newton Abbey. And I got into this kind of by accident, really. Uh, it was never my intention to do uh, Northern Irish history or Irish history. I'm an Americanist by trade, but I came across an article in the New York Times in 1944 about an American soldier who was, uh, had been ex executed in Belfast for the murder of a local man. Uh, and that kind of um, piqued my interest because like a lot of people, I had this, uh, this sort of dim idea that the Americans had been in Northern Ireland during the war. And there was even a family photo of my father with a GI uh, when he was a teenager. And it's, it all sort of clicked into place. Um, and then my, um, <clears throat> I did a little bit of digging about the soldier who was executed and it turned out he was called Wiley Harris and he was an African-American soldier. Um, so my main interest in American history is civil rights. So at this point, it was civil rights in the 30s and 40s. And this fitted into that, uh, but it fitted into a broader narrative of um, African-American soldiers in the UK and the idea that this was Northern Ireland's first encounter with a racial minority. So I wanted to know what the response of the people of Northern Ireland was to the African-American soldiers. Uh, was, was there any kind of affinity between the minority Catholic community and the African-Americans because of their kind of shared experience of oppression? Um, and what legacy, if any, uh, was left behind? And where Harris is concerned, and I imagine we'll talk a little bit more about this, I wanted to make sure he was guilty uh, because Black soldiers were disproportionately likely to be convicted and disproportionately likely to be uh, executed for crimes, same sort of crimes that white soldiers committed. So I wanted, <clears throat> I wanted to check to make sure that he was guilty of the crime that he had been accused of. And you have been working for the last number of years on your latest book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Uh, what's it called? And um, it, it encompasses a lot more than just the uh, the black soldiers. It, it's more of a, an overall look at the uh, GI presence in Northern Ireland. Yeah, it's uh, the story just kept growing. Uh, so I made a, a visit to the public record office uh, back when it was up near the King's Hall. That's how long I've been doing the research on this book. And uh, the records that Stormont kept, <clears throat> uh, they, they, it, there was so much more to it than my particular interest. So preparations for the Americans arriving, um, what to do with the Americans through hospitality committees. Um, and uh, it, it, just, it just mushroomed. 
uh, it became about Belfast, uh, its relationship with London, its relationship with Washington, its relationship with Dublin, um, but also the other relationships. So the relationship between the Americans and the, um, the Irish government, Irish government, um, transatlantic uh, relations. Um, it got into uh, the impact on women in Northern Ireland, although some really good work has been done on that by Leanne McCormick. Um, it got into diaspora. So the idea of uh, Ulster Scots as the first Irish immigrants. Um, and memorialization, what the Americans left behind and how the presence was uh, was remembered. So it went down all of these other avenues that I wasn't anticipating. And uh, and I did, it just uh, it's it's just was fascinating to look at all of these things um, and to try and create um, try and create a, a a broad narrative, even if it has all of these um, all of these roads and avenues that uh, that depart from it. So this year on uh, the podcast here, we're going to have several episodes commemorating the 80th anniversary of the arrival of American troops in Ulster. Uh, for me, it was the chance discovery of the former American military mm. cemetery at Lisnebrini that sparked my interest mm. in the GIs. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the cemetery at Lisnebrini? Um, well, the cemetery at Listabrini uh, was the, the, the second cemetery, actually possibly the third cemetery that the Americans used. They initially had uh, cemeteries in Belfast and Londonderry, and uh, they uh, repatriated these bodies and the US Army's Graves Commission uh, came in. It worked actually with Wilton's uh, funeral home in Belfast, which I think is still, is still going. And this was going to be where they would bury the uh, any Americans who died in Northern Ireland. About 150 died, um, but, but 170 died, but 100, about 150 are or were interned, interned rather, uh, at Lisnebrini. At the end of the war, uh, American policy was to either repatriate bodies, if that's what the families wanted, or to consolidate uh, the uh, graveyards throughout uh, the UK into one in Cambridge. Now Stormont offered to look after the the cemetery and the graves in perpetuity, uh, but the Americans uh, insisted that they uh, were going to move the graves. Um, so there were a couple of ceremonies in 1945. There was one in May 1945 for US Memorial Day, uh, and then there was one in October and one in November one to mark the closing of the cemetery and the other to mark the disinterring uh, of, of the bodies. And I think about 10 years ago, as uh, locals uh, got together, Castlereagh Borough Council and um, created a, a permanent uh, memorial. One of the other poignant things about Lisnebrini, and I think your website has some photos of this, is that uh, locals adopted graves and uh, tended them. Um, and this happened, this happened elsewhere as well. I know that in uh, Arnhem after Operation Market Garden, um, uh, Dutch civilians looked after Allied servicemen's graves. Uh, so there was a similar thing that went on at Lisnebrini. 
Yeah, there is a, a lovely photo. Um, I believe it was published in an American newspaper at the time of um, what I assume is a, is a local woman uh, laying flowers on one of the graves, and you can just you can see the the white crosses kind of going out into the distance in the in the Belfast Hills. Um, so yeah, it's it's great to know that local people adopted those graves and cared for them. I think similar things happen with uh, crash sites. Um, when U.S. planes, not just U.S. planes, but when planes came down, I think there were little uh, memorials um, uh, placed at those. Um, there still are a few of those memorials uh, that can be seen around the city. Uh, there is one that I know of in uh, just in the grounds of Belfast Zoo, which commemorates 10 U.S. airmen who were killed when their, their B-17 came down on Cave Hill. Yeah, the closing of the ring um, story. Yeah, it's it's become quite a famous story, and uh, that uh, Attenborough movie um, was made about it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal tale, um, and well worth anyone uh, doing a bit more research or, or watching the film on that one. Um, we are recording this uh, conversation in February, and that in the United States of America is Black History Month. Uh, with around 300,000 US troops passing through Ulster between 1942 and 45, many of them served in segregated units um, of black, uh, black soldiers. Uh, one story from the time really shook public opinion in Ulster and prompted some to think hard and, and question the inherent racism in the United States Army. And that was a story we touched upon earlier, that of Wiley Harris Jr. Uh, what can you tell us about Harris and that story? Well, Harris was um, Harris was 26. He was from Macon, uh, Georgia. He had a, a kind of an ordinary record as uh, a soldier. And he and his comrades were based in Points Pass. Uh, they took the train into Belfast uh, on leave. Um, they spent the day drinking um, and they were in uh, North uh, Belfast. They were in a bar, um, the Diamond Bar of Recollection serves. Um, and um, they were looking for uh, prostitutes. And there was a, a woman uh, who went to an air shelter with one of Harris's colleagues, um, came back, uh, Harris then went to the air raid shelter with her, accompanied by a local man called Henry uh, or Harry Coogan. Um, Harris and the woman went down into the shelter and uh, before anything could happen, Coogan shouted that the police were coming. So the two of them hurried back out of the shelter. Harris had a flashlight, a torch, shone up and down the street, uh, couldn't see the police asked the woman to return to the shelter. She refused, so he demanded his money back. She refused to give him his money and they get into a squabble. She dropped the coins and uh, Coogan produced a knife. And uh, sorry, uh, so Coogan said that, uh, that, that Harris was carrying a knife um, and uh, struck Harris. Harris retaliated. Now, Harris had a knife in his pocket. He had a, a jackknife, a flick knife. Um, a lot of African-American soldiers, a lot of soldiers generally carried weapons. Uh, for African-American soldiers, 
uh, if they were on their own, they were being attacked by white soldiers. So they were often armed and there's, uh, uh, there are accounts of black soldiers being searched before leaving their bases to go on leave. So Harris was armed and he retaliated with um, ferocity. He stabbed Coogan 17 times uh, and then fled. Um, so Harris did kill Coogan. There's no doubt about that. The issue for the court-martial was whether or not Harris uh, acted with premeditation. Now, when you think about it, uh, you could argue that Harris was acting in self-defense. Um, so uh, that, was, that was Harris's defense. Um, however, the US military uh, judicial system it interpreted self-defense very narrowly and interpreted premeditation narrowly. So even though uh, Harris was struck first, the level of ferocity of his retaliation was such that the US uh, court-martial decided that it constituted uh, premeditation and murder and that uh, Harris was guilty. Now, Harris, as I say, Harris's guilt was not in doubt. He did do it. Um, but uh, there were pleas for clemency. Now, these mostly came from uh, unions and uh, from Protestant churches. Uh, and these got to Sir Basil Brooke, who was the prime minister at the time. Um, Brooke uh, was approached by the Duke of Abercorn, who was the governor general, and uh, asked what he could do. And Brooke said that had Harris been put on trial on a local court, a civilian court, he probably would have got a life sentence rather than a death penalty. And we did have the death penalty still uh, during the war. It was only exercised once during the war, but we did have it during the war. Um, but Brooke and Abercorn couldn't intervene because in uh, 1942, the UK government signed the Visiting Forces Act, which ceded jurisdiction uh, over American forces to the Americans, even for crimes committed against civilians. Another interesting layer to this is the coroner's jury, where the Belfast coroner, Dr. Uh, Lowe, um, told uh, the jury to disregard the fact that it was what he called a colored man who had killed a white man. They were to put this from their minds. Um, he also blamed women uh, and parents for not controlling their daughters. Um, he talked about if there was a lot less running around uh, by these young girls, this sort of thing wouldn't have happened. Um, uh, but the coroner's court found no premeditation. So Harris could have been spared. Now, at Harris's trial, uh, the, uh, the prostitute couldn't identify him, or rather she couldn't when she was brought to, uh, I think it was Victoria Barracks, uh, she couldn't identify him. Um, but there was blood on his uh, coat when he returned to his uh, digs and he confessed to uh, a military policeman uh, without uh, quite realizing what he was doing. Um, at the court martial, I find it really interesting that for the most part, the locals referred to Harris as the American, sometimes the colored American, which would have been normal for the time and they don't emphasize his race. The Belfast newspapers rarely make reference to his race, uh, whereas the American military, including his own defense lawyer, do. 
And when you look at the review, which is done for any, uh, any court martial uh, conviction, there is this uh, subtext about race and sex. You know, this idea that, that part of Harris's crime was that he was a black man with a white woman. And, uh, and, and Coogan is re, um, repurposed, if you like, as defending, uh, defending this woman. Um, coming to her aid. So the threat is not to Coogan as such, the threat is to the, to the, to the woman, to the white woman. Um, but they confirm his sentence. Eisenhower um, uh, signs the death warrant and the uh, US military gets in touch with the police and with Coogan's family. And they stress that this was, a, this was about um, about discipline, which military justice was about, as well as justice, and it was to kind of lay down a marker that um, American soldiers would be subject to vigorous law. Um, so uh, the kind of postscript to this is that Harris was buried in a, a, a not quite an unmarked grave, but in a graveyard in France where uh, other people given the death sentence uh, are buried and they're, they're all marked with uh, small black plaques um, that is hedged off away, for, away from the rest of the cemetery. There are a lot of layers to unpack in that story, um, not, not just uh, on, on a, you know, a, a level of race, but in terms of, of feminism and just a totally different way of uh, thinking that people had at the time. And this, this story of Wiley Harris Jr. thankfully is, is something of an anomaly uh, from Northern Ireland at the time. Uh, many black service personnel passed through Ulster, particularly in quartermaster regiments on their way to North Africa and Normandy. What was life like for the most part for these men when they came to Northern Ireland? The, uh, the response um, of uh, African-American soldiers and the local population seems to be broadly positive. Um, now, there are caveats with this when it comes to interracial dating, but this, or, or dating rather, uh, but you had this with white Americans uh, as well. And uh, one of the things that, and it's, this is not unique to Northern Ireland by any means, but one of the things that uh, Black GIs found was that um, they were being treated well by a white population, um, which by and large they weren't used to, particularly if they were from uh, the south of the United States. Um, uh, they proved popular with the girls, as you might imagine, as indeed many Americans did, and seemed to recall their time here uh, fondly. Um, uh, letters home uh, talk about uh, how much fun they're having, how welcome they're being made. And there are a couple of great stories uh, that I've come across about uh, the Black GIs. These, a couple of these might be apocryphal, uh, but there is a story about uh, Black GIs uh, showing up to uh, a dance. I think it was in Bestbrook. And there's a sign on the, the hall door saying, dance for the Black men. And these African-American GIs show up and they're not allowed in. And they think that there's that Jim Crow's been introduced, uh, that there's going to be a color bar. And obviously it turns out that it's a dance for members of the Royal Black uh, Preceptory. Um, so 
it looks like an encounter with Jim Crow, but it's actually an encounter with Northern Ireland's parochialism. Um, there is uh, a story that someone I interviewed for the for the articles, which became part of the book, um, a guy from Antrim called Bob Fawcett, and he remembered the GIs in Antrim in '42. Um, uh, one of the things that he talked about there's a uh, a more unpleasant incident, which we can perhaps talk about in a moment, but one of the things he remembered was um, befriending a, uh, a black GI called uh, Buck Nettles. Uh, and Buck Nettles had two jackets, one with sergeant stripes on it and one without because he kept getting busted. So he kept two jackets to save on the sewing. Bob also recalled an incident where his family were woken um, and they came downstairs and they found a black GI on their living room floor. And what had happened was uh, this soldier had seen American military police, uh, didn't want to get into trouble uh, and ran away from them, thought that the front window was an alley, uh, an alley because it was quite low and crashed through it. Uh, and the following day he comes back, has the window repaired, gives uh, Bob's father a bottle of whiskey. Um, so there is a lot of uh, there's a there is a lot of positivity about uh, the presence of black GIs, certainly from the, the GIs themselves. But we need to understand this in terms of the fact that the presence of these uh, these soldiers was transitory. So this isn't like mass immigration into the rest of the UK with the Windrush. Uh, where people are coming, they're bringing their families and they're staying. The Black GIs are there to win the war. They're going to be here for a little while and then they're going to leave. And, uh, and for that reason, we don't really see the development of, um, of, of, of racism. And we don't have, a, and I certainly don't come across this in my research, that there's any kind of adherence to um, particular notions of white supremacy which American, white Americans bring with them. Now, that's not to say that there, aren't, there isn't racism, that there aren't stereotypes. If you look at the newspaper reports about the black GIs coming in, it's littered, they're littered with stuff about black, uh, black Americans being musical, being superstitious. Uh, now, all of these sorts of things, which are meant, which are meant positively, but actually reinforce uh, a series of uh, stereotypes. So in general, relations between locals and GIs, uh, both black GIs and, and their white counterparts in Northern Ireland were good. Uh, was there, however, any opposition um, from politicians or authorities to the presence of these American military men in Northern Ireland? Uh, it depends on who you talk to. Now, when the US government and the UK government uh, were planning the deployment and this um, actually was uh, being talked about hypothetically as early as February, March, 1941, so well before Pearl Harbor. Stormont was not part of the discussions. Stormont is told um, American forces are on their way. Uh, from the perspective of Stormont and the prime minister at that point, it was John M. Amber, John M. Andrews, uh, they were delighted. It put Northern Ireland at the, the center of the war effort. Um, it made Northern Ireland indispensable, particularly in the Battle of the Atlantic. So uh, London, Derry and Lisa Halley um, 
uh, outside London now had become really important to the US Navy. Um, so unionist politicians and Stormont are delighted. Uh, nationalist politicians um, are outwardly angry. Uh, so when the Americans arrive, uh, a couple of nationalist politicians from, uh, from Derry complain. Uh, one of them um, compares it to the, the Germans occupying Norway. Um, uh, and De Valera, Prime Minister of ERA, uh, also complains, um, saying that he should have been asked because, because of the ERA's constitution, uh, they claim Northern Ireland. Um, and uh, the British and American authorities uh, didn't tell De Valera until the Americans were pretty much ready to disembark. Um, so, but that's kind of the limit of it. I think there's, there's a realization that, um, that Arrow's claim over Northern Ireland is rhetorical and, uh, and, and the, the Americans can come here and the British can send, let the Americans come here and there's nothing they can do about it. Um, I think there's also a sense that it's not gonna play well in the States if they keep complaining about the Americans. Um, it, there's, uh, if they do this, then they are kind of denigrating what the Americans are fighting for and what the Americans are dying for. So uh, for the most part, uh, nationalist politicians stay quiet about the Americans for the rest of the war. Now, what this does in terms of uh, how the war is remembered is that um, it becomes essentially a unionist narrative about the war, um, whether it's the war generally or about the, uh, the Americans specifically. Um, it allows unionists to, um, to talk about what the war was about, how the war is gonna be remembered, how the Americans um, uh, behaved and so on. Now, what's also noteworthy is that uh, a lot of Americans were stationed west of the ban. So they were stationed in areas which had um, nationalist majorities. But what the Ministry of Information found was that this actually lessened tensions. Uh, where there were Americans, they were made welcome. And the Ministry of Information report says, because they were very difficult people to hate, the Americans were just too likable. And even if you thought that they were a foreign occupying force, they were still, they were still nice people. Um, so, so there, there is some hostility. There are, um, there's brawling. Uh, uh, there, are there are attacks on American soldiers, um, but they're, you know, like they're being assaulted under, under the, uh, under the blackout rather than terrorist attacks on them. Um, some of these attacks are claimed by the IRA. Um, some of them, I think, are claimed for the IRA in the sense that. Um, they will claim responsibility for this and you know, generate a wee bit of publicity about it. Um, so uh, so there, there are problems that the Americans bring which transcend sectarian tensions. They bring crime, they bring obviously racism, um, uh, they bring their drunkenness and so on. Um, but it seems that both communities broadly welcomed them. And on their, on their arrival to Northern Ireland, American troops were issued with a pocketbook and, and in that pocketbook, they were instructed to not talk about religion and not talk about politics. This, however, didn't stop politicians talking about the Americans. 
and one unionist member of parliament at the time referred to local girls, uh, what he called stepping out with black GIs, saying that they were, and I quote, uh, mostly of the lowest type and belong to our minority. Uh, despite mm -hmm. concerns such as these, uh, Northern Ireland didn't introduce a color bar. And there were, as you've said, instances of racism, uh, one of which brought General Benjamin O. Davis to Ulster. Um, but how did the time spent both in, in Great Britain and in Northern Ireland influence attitudes uh, towards segregation in the United States Army? Uh, well, the US Army stays segregated until 1948. Um, the attitude of the uh, US Army, and this is, this is really disingenuous, is that uh, segregation isn't discrimination. Black and white soldiers are supposed to be treated equally, just um, but what they would call separate but equal. Uh, and this was never the case. Um, I think there's there, there comes a moment, um, and there's a debate going on in the States about this, uh, that the principles which America is fighting for um, uh, are undermined by segregation, by Jim Crow, by racism. Um, now, the Army's or the military's attitude was that, uh, and this is a bit of a cop out, but that a, a global war wasn't a time for um, uh, social change. So, uh, so the army would remain segregated. The attitude of Eisenhower was that uh, the, the military reflected the society it came from and the society was segregated. Therefore, it made sense for the uh, military to be segregated, but it becomes increasingly unsustainable uh, after the war. There are um, uh, instances where there is a little bit of integration, most famously uh, during the Battle of the Bulge, where the situation is so desperate that Eisenhower calls for volunteers from the service units, so the quartermaster units that you mentioned, and other uh, non-combat units, and um, several thousand African-American servicemen volunteer and they fight in integrated units and obviously they help to repel the uh, the Germans and Eisenhower was actually happy to continue this uh, but once the emergency was over his superior uh, George C. Marshall um, told them to revert to segregated units. So what this demonstrated to civil rights activists uh, was that integration worked um, but it was uh, the US military did research on this and they found almost universally host universal hostility from white soldiers, whether from the north or the south, to integrated units. And that's only when Harry Truman uh, uh, issues an executive order in 1948 uh, that the US military is finally desegregated. So 80 years on in Northern Ireland, there remains a really strong interest in events that took place during the Second World War. Um, one of your next areas of research will be in the area of memorialization, uh, looking at how Northern Ireland remembers the American presence here during the war. Um, at the top of the podcast, I mentioned uh, the memorial at Lisnebrini. Uh, what monuments or memorials can people visit today um, that mark the time spent in Northern Ireland by the Americans? Um, well, the obvious one is the memorial column at uh, Belfast City Hall. Uh, this was unveiled in January 1943 to mark the first anniversary. And uh, the uh, military parade 
put on and uh, one American newspaper called it the, the greatest spectacle seen in the UK since the start of the war. Uh, and that was initially going to be at Dufferin Quay where the Americans disembarked uh, and it was initially going to be temporary, but they decided quite quickly to uh, make it permanent. When Eisenhower came in 45, um, you know, he's at the city hall. Uh, when President Clinton came in, uh, I think it's 1996, um, he rededicated uh, the memorial. So that's, in some respects, that's the most visible and central one. I suppose the other main one would be uh, the Ranger Muse Rangers Museum um, in Carrickfergus, where Darby's Rangers uh, were formed in the summer of 1942. Um, and there's now a museum uh, to that. Um, uh, we also have the War Memorial Museum, uh, which is moved from its original uh, location, uh, but it has a copper frieze, which uh, represents the Americans. Um, it has two, one representing the Americans, the other representing Northern Ireland's industry. Um, and one attempted memorialization, a web memorializing the Americans, which didn't come to fruition was turning Arma Observatory into a planetarium to honor the Americans. Uh, the uh, uh, entrepreneurial and opportunistic head of the observatory, um, uh, a, a chap called Lindsay, uh, was trying to get funding for it. And this was his pitch to Stormont uh, and also to the Americans, but uh, it never came to pass. Um, you could also look at memorials to the Americans, which are less obvious. For example, um, the Strandtown camp in, uh, in Derry uh, was turned into housing. Uh, and there's a little memorial there uh, recalling the Nissen huts. And after the war um, in, uh, at Strandtown and also in uh, East Belfast, and this happened throughout the UK, uh, but families who have been rendered homeless by the war um, took over these former American camps uh, and some were eventually turned into housing states. And then actually the one at Strandtown, um, I think remained in use until the early 1960s and is seen as one of the triggers for the, the civil rights movement um, here uh, over, um, over housing. So there are memorials around if you, if you, want, to, uh, if you want to look for them. Well, Simon, I hope that that research goes well for you. And uh, I also hope that uh, maybe we'll get around some of those sites together in the near future. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, can you tell us just one last time, what is the title of your book and where can our listeners pick up a copy? Uh, the book is called Northern Ireland, the United States and the Second World War. It's with Bloomsbury Academic and you can find it on their website. Thank you, Dr. Simon Tobin. I am sure many of our listeners will be eager to read more about this absolutely fascinating subject. And thanks for joining us. If you would like to learn a little bit more about the Americans in Ulster, why not check out episode one of our podcast, A Wee Bit of War, when we were joined by the wonderful Mary Pat Kelly to talk about her book and documentary, Home Away From Home. Subscribe to A Wee Bit of War on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your co-workers. Break all the rules of the Official Secrets Act 
and why not leave a review to help others find the podcast. Thank you for joining myself and Simon Topping, and I look forward to your company again next time for another wee bit of war.